Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. It's a joy, it's a privilege to open the Word of God this morning reverently and humbly as Ben prayed to really come to the Word of God as a feast, as a meal, and to do so with a humble and contrite spirit is my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for my own heart, and what a joy it is to continue in our Exodus series. We're going to be picking up in chapter 20, and this really marks a transitional moment in our series as we now are going to be over the next weeks, uh, perhaps even months, unpacking the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, and what a rich study I believe that will be. Before you get too comfortable, we have an easy section today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 of Exodus 20, and if you're able with me, if you would now stand with me and read together the three verses of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for mercy. We pray for help. We pray for revelation. Pray for insight. We pray for application. We pray that you'd feed your people. Lord, you love your people. You have breathed out your word for your people. And Lord, we don't want to come here idly. We don't want to come here to hear a sermon. We want to come here to be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We recognize this morning with one heart and one soul that we are not where we used to be, but we're not where we need to be. Father, accomplish by your grace what only you can do, by the power of your spirit working through your word and your servant. We give it all to you as an act of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20. I've entitled this sermon, Living Before the Face of God. I think as we encounter the opening phrase of the Decalogue, we see such a marked moment of God dealing with his people as we've been seeing unfold through the narrative thus far in covenant. And by way of introduction, I'll never forget, as I'm sure if you're married, you won't either, the day of my wedding. It's May 14th, 2011. And for me, of course, and my wife, it marked in our lives a unique and profound moment of transition. In a multitude of ways, of course, it was our wedding day, and as we stood on the steps of the Newfane Courthouse, just up the road, on a cool, cloudy May afternoon, I was never more ready for something in all my life. And I don't know about you, maybe you were trepidatious and afraid in your wedding day. I was like, let's go. I'm waiting for this all my life. And by the grace of God, he had just put such a willing heart and desire in, of course, a beautiful woman in my life, a godly woman, a woman who I could not wait to spend the rest of my days with. And I was ready to go. But I'll never forget as I'm sitting there and standing there looking into her beautiful face on our wedding day as we're about to exchange vows, I realized that something was happening in the exchange of words that was quite profound. And of course, at the time, I knew it was profound being a believer. I knew that words mattered. Twelve years later, not too long, I can attest that those words matter even more than they did on that day. Because words carry weight. Words are binding. And as I looked into her face, and I quoted these words, for better or worse, for rich, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and cherish until death do us part. We were exchanging solemn vows before God and man, declaring that for the length of our days, we would love one another exclusively. There would be no one else. It would be her and I in the holy bond of matrimony. And what we were doing fundamentally before God and men was really not lost on us because we were entering into covenant, the holy institution of marriage. We were effectively laying down our lives for each other, willingly and gladly, in a type of holy surrender for the purpose of becoming one flesh before God. We were effectively binding ourselves in covenant through our words to each other in God. And we had willingly laid claim of each other. 
And in so doing, we embarked upon a categorically new existence. As man and wife, we were, as the Bible puts it, in the sight of God, a new creation. A new creation. This is significant not only on its own right, but as we see Exodus 20 unfold before us, this is what's happening. God has, in the previous chapter, prepared a bride for himself. We saw Pastor Dave flesh that out, uh, I think, rather well last week as we looked at the preparation that God had required of his people to come before him, to come to the Mount Sinai. He called Moses up to the top of the mountain where he would spend 40 days and nights receiving this law, receiving what we'll unpack over the next weeks. And he said, do not come near the mountain. This is a holy mountain. Mark it off. Set boundaries. Prepare yourself. Cleanse yourself. Three days of consecration. And in a similar way, God is entering into covenant. He's having a marriage ceremony with his people Israel. And the Ten Commandments serve not just as the Mosaic covenant, but they serve literally in a type and foreshadow of the wedding vows that God was exchanging with his bride. And he says as much in chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, just quickly by way of review, he calls and makes a promise to his people in the previous chapter saying that you would be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God publishes a precious and amazing promise following their radical rescue from Egypt. The people have come like a bride to Mount Sinai. They have readied themselves, and now God, through the word of God, the very same word that created the world and all that is in it, now is creating for himself a people, love-bound by covenant, as a new creation for the glory of God and the blessing of his people. God reveals that these are binding words of love and promise that extend not only to them, but their children and their children's children. They are words of promise, words of exclusivity, words of communion. So by way of a proposition or by way of what's the main point of this section this morning, if you forget everything else I say, I want to build on something I said a couple weeks ago where I said God's redemptive actions create ministry. I want to build on that and say God's redemptive actions create enable and sustain our obedience. God's redemptive actions create, enable, and sustain our obedience. So as we approach the Ten Commandments, we approach this holy and perfect law of God, and specifically this morning as we approach this tremendous emphasis on thou shalt have no other gods before me, and we deal with the subject specifically of idolatry. I want you to keep, and I hopefully will argue and make the case, that when God enters into covenant with his people, as he has done so with us in Christ in the new covenant, he has both redemptively created, enabled, and sustained your obedience to him by faith the whole time, the whole way. So if, like me, you wrestle with a nagging, idolatrous spirit, know up front that God has made a way to kill it. God has made a way to reckon with it. God has made a way to overcome it. And it's by the blood of his son shed on the cross and the resurrected power of life in Jesus. And all that belong to him, you have that spirit in you. So God has enabled you, created it, and made it possible for you to obey him with a whole and willing heart. And becoming, over time, one flesh with God by his spirit in union with Jesus Christ, he will bring that about just like he is bringing it about in your marriage, just as like he is bringing it about in your life of faith. So again, I think by way of an outline, I want to give you three things that will orient our time this morning. First, we see that God reveals himself by self-revelation. So first, we see God's self-revelation. This is significant. We will unpack that. Secondly, we will see God's radical demonstration of deliverance. We will see God's radical demonstration of deliverance. And thirdly and finally and most significantly, we will see God's holy expectation 
of a liberated people. God's holy expectation of a liberated people. So again, we know that the children of Israel had just come out of 430 years, you can fathom that, of slavery. A slavery that had effectually eradicated their self-conscious covenantal identity. A slavery that had synthesized them into the pagan idol worship of Egypt. Okay? They had been out of slavery for only three months when they come to Sinai. And consequently, God not only demonstrated his love in mighty acts of signs and wonders over those three months, uh, in faithfulness and delivering them with a strong hand, but he gives them at Sinai, as we said, their constitution, okay? As we have a nation, we have a constitution. Now, there are forces at play that are seeking to get rid of that document, uh, working really hard at it. But nonetheless, what makes America, America fundamentally is our constitution. And God, in this wedding ceremony, is giving them their constitution. It would be the thing, the binding document, if you will, that will also constitute them going forward. It would orient them by statutes in both their vertical relationship with God first and their horizontal relationship to one another. So the law of God orients us towards God first and then each other respectively and always in that order. And the same is fleshed out in the New Testament as well. So picking up, in our first point, God's self-revelation in verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Man, what an amazing proclamation. I don't think there could be something more true and profound for God to declare than that he is the Lord God Almighty. Yet, to declare that he has also sovereignly chosen a people for himself is even greater, is, is so profound to me that as you reflect on who God reveals himself to be, who he condescends to man and says, this is who I am, the great I am. But then he says, not only that, I am your God. And I hope this morning as you sit here, you can, you can rejoice in that truth. You can just like lose your mind in the truth that as the people of God, God is not just up there as the Lord God over all. He is here with us as his people. He is our God. And I think that's so significant as God reveals not only himself, his name, and his character, but that we would also begin to, joy, to rejoice and to cherish in the reality that our God is personal. He is our God. He is my God, as Thomas would say in, the, uh, in John chapter 20, I believe it is, when he's the doubting Thomas, right, the doubting uh, disciple. He's like, I won't believe until I see, and Jesus shows up and shows him the hands and the wounds in his side, and he falls down at Jesus' feet, and he says, my Lord and my God, because he had a revelation of who Jesus was. And you and I sit here this morning, if we're in the faith, and we sit here because we have had a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. We've had a revelation of who God Almighty is. And this revelation was brought about sovereignly. This revelation was not so much the result of us seeking after God, but God seeking after us. That's such a precious truth that as in the Garden of Edom, when Adam was separated from God by sin, and it says in chapter 3, verse 9, that he hid himself behind a tree, and he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and God says to Adam, where are you? This started a fundamental paradigm in all of Scripture where we see God pursuing man, not man pursuing God. Man is always hiding from God. Man is always running from God. Man is always running from himself. And yet we see the Lord step in to our brokenness post the fall and says, where are you? God has been pursuing you your whole life. And he has brought you here this morning by way of his self-revelation, by way of opening the eyes of your heart to see him as he is. And what a need we have as the people of God always to behold God rightly and to see him as he is. So we see that God is the pursuer of man in Genesis 3.9. I want to kind of take us on a little bit of a journey. Again, this is slightly a topical message, so bear with me. 
as we are looking at verse 2. But I want to take us on a journey through Scripture, and I just want to spend some time in the Old Testament and reveal the nature in which God not only seeks us, pursues us, but reveals Himself to us. I love in Psalm 119 in verse 176, the last verse of that great psalm, David says at the end of it all, all of his crying out uh, in that psalm and thirsting after the Word of God, he says this profound thing, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. He says, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. What a precious reality that David here, the great psalmist of Israel, who wrote 176 verses, a total treatise on loving the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, at the very end of it all, comes to the end of it and says, I am a lost sheep. I can't do this. I can't keep this. All of my being desires it, but I have fallen short. Lord, the only rescue for me is that you would seek your servant. And truly, friends, the only rescue we have is that God seeks us first in Christ and that we've been found in Christ, that God has sought us out. Isaiah is extremely helpful here in multiple places, and I want to just give you a quick run through a couple sections of Isaiah, which is my favorite book of the Bible. But in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and 11, God is speaking peace to his people. And he says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Take notice of this. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. What a precious scripture of the tender care of God, the shepherding heart of God, that he is truly the great shepherd, as Jesus himself says. He will tend his flock. He will gather his lambs. And this morning, you know, you may be in all kinds of ways this morning, but the Lord has brought you here so that he might communicate to you that he loves you like a shepherd. He tenderly cares after you. He will guide you. He will carry you in his arms, and he will lead you home. This is your God. This is the God we worship. And again, in Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, he says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. What does he say? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Brothers and sisters, as we contemplate the reality that God reveals himself to us as the great I am, we, of course, rightly hearken back to Exodus chapter 3. We remember his encounter with Moses in giving Moses his name, his eternal name, and as the Hebrews would sort of pronounce it as we translate it in English as Yahweh, and he says, I am that I am, or literally in the Hebrew, I will be what I will be. And then, of course, in John, the Gospel of John, in seven different places, Jesus identifies himself as the great I am. He says, I am before Abraham. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, etc. And we see that in all of these things, God is revealing not just his name, but in keeping with his name, he gives us his character. And he wanted his people to know who he was because they had forgotten all about him. They didn't know who he was. These people coming to Mount Sinai did not know who God really was. They were babes in faith. And God wants you and I to know who he is. At the bottom of the barrel, God wants us to know who he is. Because if we don't know who God is, how can we live for Him? If we don't know what He's like, how can we obey Him? How can we love Him? So the question today is, do you believe this? Do you live your life with the knowledge that the living God is on your side? And that He will shepherd you in perfect faithfulness? I had to ask myself that question this week as I, like many of you, wrestle 
with varieties of things, wrestle with life, wrestle with my job, wrestle with a host of things. And, and you know, you, sometimes life gets very confusing. Life gets very dim. And you say, Lord, are you, are you leading me at all? Are we going somewhere? And the Lord just kind of dropped this and said, I will shepherd you in perfect peace and perfect faithfulness. I will carry you. And, and it's the word of God for you this morning. John 15, verse 16 says, you did not, Jesus to his disciples in the upper room, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What a great promise. And again, as we've been saying, as we sit here this morning, it's so often, especially as you walk a long time with God, you, you tend to start to fall into a, a thinking that you're choosing every decision in your life, and that sort of the, the, the roles have reversed, and, and now it's all on you. And of course, there is much responsibility in the Christian life. It's, uh, it's not that, but it's that God has appointed you, chosen you, and as a result, He will keep you and cause you to be effective and fruitful as you obey Him and love Him and serve Him. God will bring all this about. So God in His self-revelation discloses himself as completely self-sufficient. Yet, in tender mercy and infinite wisdom, he chooses us for his glory in our eternal joy. He woos us to himself by the work of his Holy Spirit, laying claim upon our souls in eternity past unto eternity future. I love the account of Saul when he's on the road to Damascus. He gets knocked off his high horse, literally, by the light of Christ, and he cries out and says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the words that follow, he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's entire journey began with a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And again, your journey has begun, if it's real, with a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. John eight fifty eight, as I already said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And lastly, I think we can all concur with Ephesians 1.4, where it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is what's going on at Sinai. This is what God is doing covenantally with his people as he weds them to himself with vows He's laying claim to them as the sovereign king of the world, the sovereign Lord of their life. Not only that, he's describing and giving them indicators, hearkening back to Exodus 3, where he says, I am the great I am. I will be to you all that you need on this journey. I will be to you a perfect husband, a perfect shepherd, a perfect king, a perfect guide, a perfect rock. This is what God is declaring to his people. And this is so fundamentally important and vital that this starts the Decalogue and that we don't just launch into the commandments because God is laying down a vital foundation not only for our understanding but our joy so that we can respond to, to God in wholehearted obedience. See, if it was the other way around, which it often is in our own lives, we often invert it where we try to obey God to get from God, and God says, no, you obey me because I first gave to you. You're responding out of a holy response. You're, you're reacting to grace. You're living in light of what I have done. You're not seeking to earn it. So this is so important as we start this, that we lay somewhat of a theological foundation for how God enters into relationship with us. We did not stumble upon God one day under a rock and say, this looks like a good God, let me worship it. If that has been your encounter with God, the God of the Bible, then it's a false encounter. God broke into your life. God entered into your pain. God entered into your brokenness and called you to himself, called you to repentance, called you to the cross of his son and said, if you die, you will live. He called you to the rock. So not only does God lay this foundation of who he is as the great I am, which is so powerful and significant, but he goes further and he gives them 
a revelation of his radical rescue. We see God's radical demonstration of deliverance, where it says in the latter part of verse 2, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Friends, we are born as slaves. Now, this confronts and offends our identity often, especially as Americans. See, I'm not a born slave. What are you talking about? We are born dominated from infancy by our sin nature. We are completely enslaved to ourselves. We, from our earliest recollection, were held fast by the cords of self-orientation and selfishness. We were slaves of the corruption and lusts of our flesh with no way out apart from the saving grace of God. We did not choose the good. God chose us. And as Psalm 40 says, Christ lifted our feet out of the miry clay and set us on a rock and made our steps secure. This is what has radically transpired in the gospel. If you are born again, God has literally broken into your life and pulled you out of a pit that you could not escape on your own, out of the miry clay of your own brokenness, your own depravity, your own sin, your own, uh, you were bound, held fast by your old nature, your Adamic nature. This is fundamental and really elementary doctrine. But we see here that God establishes the nature and foundation of the relationship. God establishes, again, the nature and foundation of the relationship by letting them know not to forget where they came from. For if we do, it's a sure way to return to our vomit. For forgetting who we were is also a sure way to despise the hand of God as he fashions us into the image of his beloved son. So God is reminding them of really how it all began. And, I, you know, maybe you do this on your dates. I don't know. Maybe you go out with your wife and you just kind of reminisce about how it all began. And hopefully it's a good reminiscing. Hopefully it's something you look back with with joy and like, oh, the Lord really, you know, brought us together and uh, perhaps that's your experience, perhaps it's not, but now you look back and say, oh, but the grace of God intervened and here we are anyway. And that's beautiful as well. But God is reminiscing with his people. He's got them at the foot of the mountain, ready to hear from God, and he's, he's reminding them of where they came from. And that's significant on, on many levels, but you remember the kind of people that they are. They seem to have a really short memory. They seem to really forget often, like me, like you. They seem to forget the kind of bondage that they were in because they often reflect on it with this almost yearning for it. With, oh, I want to go back to Egypt, to the leeks, the melons. It was so much better. It was so much safer. And friends, slavery is always safer. But God wants to liberate us and cause us to break out and to turn the tables on our enemy. And, and this is something that always plagued the Israelites. They're always looking back and saying, man, if we could only just, the bondage was better. It was secure. And God says, no, I am better. I am so much better. So God wanted them to remember the foundation of their relationship. They wanted, he wanted them to remember where they came from. And he doesn't only lay claim to his people, but he demonstrates his love for his people. God doesn't just bind them covenantally with words, as significant as that is, but he enacts his love with demonstration. He proves his love. Romans chapter 5, 6 and 11 says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul, in his great treatise on Romans, lays out the reality that God not only 
called us to himself with words, but he demonstrated his love for us on the cross of Christ. That while we were enemies of God, we were not interested in God, we had nothing to do with God, we hated God, God died for us. He didn't just die, he rose again. Demonstrating for all eternity, to, as, so as to remove all doubt, to remove all uncertainty, to remove all fear that God actually loves us in Christ and has demonstrated it and gone through unbelievable lengths to show the efficacious nature of the atonement that he has wrought in Jesus, that he would die for sinners who hate him, not die for friends, die for those who hate him, so as to reconcile his enemies to himself. This is what God has done in Christ. This is what God is reminding them that he has done as a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ at Sinai. He says, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice he doesn't include Moses. <laughs> I love that. That's important. Moses is just a tool. He's just an instrument. He doesn't say Moses brought you out. He says, I brought you out. God is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. There is no man or woman that brought you out of your slavery. And if there is someone that you point to and say, they're the reason I'm a Christian, run. They may have been used by God, surely. I, I can point to people in my life that uh, are still alive that, you, that God sovereignly used to woo me to himself. And I'm so grateful for them. But they are not the one who brought me out of Egypt. They are not the one who opened my eyes. They're not the one who gave me revelation into the person of Christ. So we see that God is demonstrating his radical deliverance. But I also want to build out, again, as I said in my proposition, this gospel enablement that is so woven into this section of Scripture and so vital that we grasp before we enter the Decalogue and before we enter the commandments that we see that this gospel deliverance brings gospel enablement. This gospel deliverance brings with it gospel enablement. Apart from the deliverance and demonstration of God and bringing his people out of slavery, they were doomed to not only remain as slaves, but even more so to act like slaves instead of sons and daughters. So the foundation of this Mosaic covenant is not works, but grace. Hear that again. The foundation of this Mosaic covenant is not works, it is grace. Paul builds that out in Romans chapter 4. A whole sermon could be devoted to that. We don't have time today. Suffice to say that God is laying the foundation of all his expectation at Sinai for his people in covenant with the foundation that it is not based on you, it is based on me. Gospel deliverance produces gospel enablement. So the application of a right understanding of the law of God applied in the Christian's life is always downstream of a right understanding first of our position and identity in Christ by the grace of justification by faith. The grace of justification by faith. We stand free to obey God with joy and a willing heart in total response to the grace of God in Christ. Since Christ is our righteousness, the full fulfillment of the law for all who believe, our obedience is the result of appropriation and application by faith of our deliverance. Now, the Ten Commandments, friends, the law of God is still binding on the Christian inasmuch as it continues to carry weight. It's the word of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So we have this holy, good, and right tension. Paul says the law is not evil. The law is good and perfect. It is right. So we don't disband the law saying we're under grace. We say grace enables us to live in obedience to Christ. Grace is the gospel enablement that makes us desire righteousness, to live in righteousness, to want righteousness, and to bear the fruits of righteousness. It's all because of grace. So my question this morning in light of this is what marks your life? Slavery or sonship? What, what is the mark of your life? Do you, do you live your life as a slave or a son or a daughter? Do you reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God by faith? Or are you living and operating constantly in the flesh? 
And I would say it this way, what habitually, meaning consistently, not as aberrations, but what consistently marks your life? Is it the victory and power of the gospel? Is it the liberating effect of gospel deliverance producing gospel enablement? Or are you just constantly grinding it out by the skin of your teeth, always frustrated, always losing your battle with sin, always ensnared by the every temptation that surrounds you, always living in a place of discontentment and aggravation in the, the fruits of the flesh, as Galatians 5 outlines, then we have to take inventory of our lives and say, what marks my life? What has laid claim on me? What is my identity? Is it sonship or a slave? If you are in Christ, then his spirit cries out, Abba, Father, and we desire and delight to do his will, seeking always to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live by the spirit. We have a mind set on the spirit, not on the flesh, which Romans 8 says is uh, life and peace. If it's set on the flesh, and it's death. I mean, if it's set on the spirit, and it's death. If it's set on the flesh. And this word set means to be established in, to be covenantally bound in a way. So to, to set my feet is to chart a course and say, this is the habit of my life. This is the way. This is the road of righteousness. There is no other. And yes, we occasionally fall into the ditch. And I am in, in no way ignorant of the temptations and snares of the flesh. And we do fall in ditches and God rescues us. God pardons us. God gets us out of some really dark pits. But the habit of our life is straight and forward. The way of our life is level and good because it is the way of righteousness. All of this brings us with the last time we have to our third and final point and hopefully where all this ties together. The great declaration that you shall have no other gods before me. So we see thirdly God's holy expectation of a liberated people. God doesn't lighten the standard. He says, because of the grace, this is the standard. Because of all that I am and all that I've done, this is the call. And I love it because if we are not living like liberated sons and daughters, I want to give you two reasons, categorical reasons, and I, I think this is true, or else I wouldn't say it. There are only two reasons you're either not living like a son or daughter is because, one, you either do not actually belong to God in Christ and are not regenerate and do not have His Spirit operating in you effectively and effectually. Or, secondly, and I think this is probably the majority of us, if not all of us, we are worshiping and serving another God. Those are the only two reasons that you're not living in victory. Now, we could unpack those things to tremendous depth, and we ought to on some measure, but fundamentally, those two realities are the categories. You're either not in Christ and thereby not regenerate, thereby not overcoming by the blood of the Lamb, or you're in idolatry, worshiping another God, serving another God. You don't see God rightly. You don't love God rightly. You don't live for God rightly because you have an idol between you and God. God says, you shall have no other gods before me, meaning literally there shall be nothing in between you and me, like Adam behind the tree. Say, well, the tree wasn't an idol. Well, it stood in the way of him and God. It was what he was hiding behind. And all idolatry fundamentally is this imagery of something high and lofty over and above the right authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Anything that we put in front of God, excuse me, in front of ourselves before God and say, this is what I will bow down to, this is what I will worship, is essentially and very simplistically idolatry. So we are either not his child and don't have his spirit, or we have committed gospel treason of the highest order. So what are we to do with this? If, if we find ourselves maybe committing gospel treason of the highest order, what are we to do? In the last 10 minutes or so, I want to take a detour to, once again, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. I want to flesh out for us what this idolatry looks like, the progression of it, and then the remedy for it. In Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, we have a polemic on idolatry. Isaiah 40 through 45 is worthy of your slow reading. 
and I commend it to you for that purpose. You should really take some time and do that. In Isaiah 44, 9 through 10, God says of his people, to his people, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And the carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and it's satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. Falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also break bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? This is where we want to spend our time. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Powerful. We see here, of course, the folly, the insanity, the foolishness of idolatry. Now, all of us here, I don't think we have a problem so much with a wooden idol, okay? We live in the 21st century. None of us are naive. We understand that's a block of wood. But what we don't understand is that all idolatry flows from the epicenter of the human heart. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. All idolatry flows from our heart, and often the very source of it is that we want to be God. We want to take God's place. We want to take God's rank. We want to take God's authority away from him and give it to ourselves. So three things that are a descent into idolatry flowing from the human heart are found in verse 20. And I want to unpack these briefly, and then I want to provide a remedy, and we will close. Firstly, we see, as God outlines, that they are feeding on ashes. And I want to make this proposition that idolatry always starts with what you feed. Idolatry always starts with what you feed. The people of God were not feeding themselves from the bounty of God's faithfulness and grace, but they were grazing on ashes they were symbolically feeding on the works of the flesh in the emptiness of wood, hay, and stubble. What are you feeding on daily? What nourishes your Christian life? What is your diet like? Because the Christian life has two natures, and the one you feed is the one who wins. The one you starve is the one that loses. The whole root of idolatry can be traced to what you feed. And ashes are an apt description of the aftertaste of getting our own way and living on the diet of the world and the flesh. If the bitter aftertaste of ashes is in your mouth, then you can look at your life and say, what am I feeding on? What am I grazing on? I love and find so helpful in this way Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4, which provide an antidote for us as believers to feed on the Lord. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The ASV says, feed on his faithfulness. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is the antidote to all idolatrous chaos, that we would be a people who trust in the Lord, who do good, who dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. God promises that if you delight yourself in me, I will give you the desires of your heart. But we say, no, God, I do not trust you. I will not dwell in the goodness and bounty of the Lord. I will feed on flesh, and what we have in return is ashes in our mouth. Secondly, this causes us to descend into a deeper pit. We see that all of a sudden we have a deluded heart that has led us astray. As we feed on ashes, our heart becomes deluded. This deluded heart is literally symbolic of a lofty spirit, a high place that your heart has grown full of pride and a spirit of indifference to the ways and words of God has really gripped a hold of you and led you on a detour. As you have chosen to feed foolishly, you have been led foolishly into a place of pride and indifference. And I think it's really scary that the result of this from feeding on ashes is that we are deluded into a deception so quickly elevating ourselves as the preeminent ones and drifting from exclusive devotion to Christ. This is the descent into idolatry. God says you don't have a clear vision. You have a proud heart. Your spirit is not right within you. And as a result, you have slowly drifted from the ways and words of God. Thirdly, the last step is really the deadliest Because he says, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We become so deceived by the deceitfulness of sin that we literally begin to cheat God. We mock his ways and we become totally blind to our own lie, unable any longer to deliver ourselves or even to discern rightly our predicament. This is a very dangerous place for we are suppressing the conviction of the Holy Spirit at this point and no longer see that our life has become an outright sham, a lie built on sand awaiting a certain and tragic crash. We've become trapped in our idolatry at this point. We have made ourselves gods and we have erected a high place in our hearts that must be torn down for it mocks God It cheats his worship, and it makes us the fool. This is the descent into idolatry that plagues the people of God from the dawn of the fall. This is the same progression that we fight, and we fight it with a glorious gospel hope. And I want to end on this point. What is a strategy for fighting this insidious and prominent evil? Verses 21 and 22 provide the answer. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, For you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The two things that we must actively do if we're going to fight idolatry at the most basic level is remember and return. Remember and return. We must remember or mark, literally is the word, these things, God says, meaning this descent into idolatry. We must have it clearly delineated in our minds that this is the way in which we become sucked in to false worship of any kind. Whatever the idolatry, whatever the idol might be, this descent remains consistent. That we are a people prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, as that great hymn says. We are always prone to this, never fully free of that temptation to worship another God, a God formed in our own image, a God formed in our own imagination, a God more palpable, a God more agreeable, a God more likable. And we say, like the Israelites, we want to worship God and these pagan things. We want to have both. We want to have synthesis on all of it. And God says, no. You must remember these things lest we forget when the day of trial and temptation comes. We must remember gospel grace and deliverance that has been bought with a price. We must remember, friends, that we are not our own and that we are blood-bought. 
we must remember our Redeemer, the Lord God, our Savior. And to remember from where you have fallen is a wonderful gospel grace. Seize it and don't delay. And lastly, and consequently, we must return. We must return. We must repent and go home to our first love, our chief delight, the Lord God himself. We must pray for a restoration of the joy of our salvation. And as Paul says in think 2 Corinthians 10, tear down every lofty thing that is exalted against the preeminence and lordship of Christ, feeding afresh, brothers and sisters, upon his faithfulness in delighting again in God. As we close, I want to invite you this week, this morning, as we've considered these things and we've considered the nature of idolatry, the descent into idolatry, to have another God other than the Lord. Oh, what a horrible place to live. And many of us know that place well. And the Lord would say, remember and return. Come home today. If you find yourself in a distant country, if you find yourself far from a heart that's delighting in God, that's loving God, that he is your chief glory and affection, the Lord says, I will pardon you. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you, but you must return. You must return quickly. You must run home with all your heart and say, Lord, you alone are the one I want to feed upon. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the holy counsel of scripture that cuts between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, divides the very intents of the heart. Lord, we all stand before you, both as your own people, but plagued in various ways by the pull of the flesh, the pull of idolatry, the pull of loving another thing, another person even sometimes, another uh, whatever we can do with our hands, Father, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it every day of our lives, and Lord, we want to be bound fast to our God. Father, deliver us from a pit that we have maybe descended into and set our feet upon the rock. Let our steps be made secure and our way habitually right. Make us a people for your own possession. And you have wrought all this by the glorious gospel and you've enabled it and made it possible to do. It is not too high and not too low, for it is all by faith. So, Lord, we claim that promise. We claim that deliverance by faith this morning. We believe our God when he says he will pardon us effectively uh, and, and quickly if we return to him and confess our sin. So, Father, let our hearts be made right. Let us not live in a deluded place, but let us feed on your faithfulness. And we commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.